Greetings and salutations. You're listening to This Ends at Prom, a podcast where I, teen movie apologist BJ Colangelo, show my wife, Harmony Colangelo, a seminal teen girl movie that I missed out on because I grew up as a teen boy. Is today's movie truly emblematic of womanhood? Or of rose-colored nostalgia glasses warped your perspective? Circle yes, no, or maybe to find out if we're crowning a queen? Or if we're killing the teen dream. Welcome to This Ends at Prom. This Ends at Prom is a Pod People production. I don't wanna be your merch girl. I wanna be your goddamn idol. And I don't wanna have to work twice as hard for the same motherfucking title. But I. And welcome back to This Ends at Prom. We are in week four of Spooky Season. Uh, Really? That's all you've got? (laughs) Oh, thank you. That felt really good in my headphones. I hope it felt good for all of you listening at home. Don't worry, I'm going to edit it and turn it down. It won't be nearly as bad in post. You think that I would have learned by now to not egg you on with shit like this? No, I commit to the bit because I'm from the Johnny Knoxville School of Comedy. Yeah, you you really are. Anyway, I'm one of your co-hosts, BJ Colangelo, and the uh, the screaming Mimi over there. Who are you? I'm Harmony Colangelo. <laughs> I also like that I just pulled screaming Mimi out of my ass, like... Right. Very clever. Thank you. I, I tried with my, my little baseball reference there for you all. But we are glad to have you back. Today we're talking about a movie that um, I'm super excited to talk about because it's one that a lot of people missed. Um, so if you are one of those people, you're in for a, a little bit of a treat. But today we are talking about 2015's The Final Girls. Yay! So the synopsis of The Final Girls is when newly orphaned Max, Thaisa Farmiga, and her friends reluctantly attend an anniversary screening of Camp Bloodbath, the infamous 80s horror film that starred Max's late mother, Malin Ackerman, they are mysteriously sucked into the silver screen. They soon realize they are trapped inside the cult classic movie and must team up with the fictional and ill-fated camp counselors, including... Max's mom as the Scream Queen, to battle the film's machete-wielding killer. With the body count rising in scene after iconic scene, who will be the final girls left standing and live to escape the film? Okay, so we're in the movie. Uh, How do we get out of here? Yeah, I like that question. That's a really, really good question. Duncan, can you answer that question, please? Our synopsis was brought to you, as always, by our friends at Fandango. And by friends, I mean... I just Google it. And what's super annoying is every time I go to Fandango.com or use the Fandango app, there's this little pop-up that's like, welcome back to the movie theaters. Here's protocol for COVID. And I'm like, fuck you, I'm not going back to movie theaters. Who do you think I am? 
a, a schmuck who needed to see Tenet really bad. I guess. It's just, oh, it just feels so irresponsible to me. And, like, I get it. That's, like, their whole thing is, like, they're the thing for movie theaters and they want people to see it. Well, here's a fun thing I actually learned the other day. So, I needed to verify this because one of our friends said that Sonic the Hedgehog was the highest grossing film of the year. <laughs> and I was like, big if true. I, I want nothing more than for that to be true. It is... Like, the third highest, one of them is, like, a Chinese film I have no, no knowledge of, and then the second one's Bad Boys for Life. Mm -hmm. So it's third place. But uh, in Googling it to get these facts, Sonic the Hedgehog is still playing in theaters. Because <laughs> there's just nothing new, so they're just dusting off things from February. Hey, you know what? Sonic deserves that love. We, we stand Sonic the Hedgehog the movie in this household. We, we are firm respecters. We saw a pre-screening of it, and it was amazing. Yeah, with children. And we were the oldest people there that didn't have children. Yeah. It ruled. It was awesome. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, this is not a Fandango.com podcast. We're here to talk about the final girls. Can we do a Sonic the Hedgehog podcast? You know, there's got to be at least... Um, a lot of a them. A hundred of them, and they're all probably like, Hey guys, so um, today we're going to talk about Sonic the Hedgehog, because uh, it's my favorite video game of all time. Why are you so rude to the nerds? <laughs> it is really rude. I'm rude because in my brain, obviously this is not true, and there are probably really amazing Sonic the Hedgehog podcasts out there that I'm just not aware of, but my brain wants me to think that the only people who would have a Sonic the Hedgehog podcast would either be the angry Sonic kid who's just, like, calling people frickin' fricks. Sammy? Sammy, yes. Or it's the the person who drew Sanic. Like, that's it. Like, those Aww. are the two options. And I have no idea what they would talk like now, but that's just the voice that I use in my brain, because I'm a piece of... Shit. I don't know if to applaud you or lambast you for assuming the only people who would have a Sonic the Hedgehog <laughs> podcast are those people and then not bring up furries. Oh, good boy. Good okay. boy. I, mi I missed that boat there. My bad. <laughs> so anyway, this is also not a Sonic the Hedgehog podcast. Today's podcast is about the final girls. So Harmony, what was your knowledge of the final girls before I, I bestowed upon you this gift? I had no context for what this was. I had never heard of this. I had never heard anyone talk about this until something I was reminded of actually recently when we uh, dusted off our copy from our dusty <laughs> apartment <laughs> where the DVD still had the sticker on it from Half Priced Books where we bought it. Because I remember one of our first dates was to a Half Price Books because I like to go there and browse their record selection. Because mm -hmm. it's one of the only places you can buy secondhand ones and they aren't marked up ridiculously. Mm -hmm. And the secret's out for anybody who is in the greater Northeast Ohio area. <laughs> Apparently that's where you want to go and get your stuff. But you uh, browse the movie section and you were so delighted to find this in the wild. Well, I was delighted for a couple of reasons. First things first, what dumb, dumb idiot face was willing to give this movie up? That's my first question. And my second one is that I lost a lot of movies in a, in, in a great separation between um, myself and my former partner, because when you are with someone for a very long period of time, it becomes really hard to discern 
what belongs to who. So I kind of just threw my hands in the air and said, fuck it, I'll replace everything because I would like to leave. Um, and that's exactly what happened. So I've been slowly but surely sort of putting my, my movie collection back together. And yes, I, I could absolutely just go online and sell my soul to Jeff Bezos and order everything off Amazon. But th there's something about the thrill of the hunt Absolutely. And I'm excited about that all the time whenever I find records because, one, what are, the, what are the odds of me finding the shock treatment soundtrack just in the middle of Ohio? Right. But two, I don't have to pay like $15 shipping for something that weighs like eight ounces and only cost two dollars exactly and that's that's how i feel about it so yes i was very very excited to see the final girls because as you had mentioned this is a movie that you hadn't even heard of before i brought it to your attention not even remotely and this would have been only like what two and a half three years after the film's release yeah and it had already right. just disappeared off the planet yeah, so I, I was very, very excited, took it home, and I think we might have just watched it that day. I think we did because you were so excited. I think so because I, I was pretty fucking pumped about it. So that's what, that's what we're here to talk about today. So let's dive into it and let's first talk about our, our main characters. So let's talk about Thaisa Farmiga, who many of you may recognize from her many, many seasons of American Horror Story, but she plays Max. What do you think of Max? I don't know how I feel about Max, honestly. Okay. She is not super well-defined, mm -hmm. kind of. Like, I don't know what she does in her spare time. I don't know who she is. Like, I don't know what her interests are, her passions. Like, as a character, she's kind of ambiguous. Mm -hmm. But I also feel like I understand who this kind of girl is. Based on how she acts and how she reacts to things, I've got to, I feel like I know a lot of girls I went to high school with who were the quiet, maybe not so happy to talk to people type. You yes, know? yes, yes, yes. And I think that's a really interesting choice for them to make for Max because for all intents and purposes, like this is her movie and her story. And the fact that she isn't this archetype, nor is she... Uh, like this very memorable character. That's not to say that this character doesn't have, you know, interesting things to say or that she's not fun to watch. Mm -hmm. um, but because she's not, like, she doesn't have a distinct hairstyle. She doesn't have a distinct fashion sense. She doesn't have distinct likes or dislikes. And she sort of fulfills, oh my God, I can't believe I'm going to say this. She sort of fills that Bella Swan vessel role Okay. Um, and what I mean by that is the the Bella Swan character in the Twilight franchise is described like so just blah that it makes it so easy for whoever is reading those books or watching those movies to slip themselves into that character and like use that character as the vehicle for their perspective on the movie. And I think that's what they did here with Max because like Max is so kind of whatever she can be anyone. Yeah, absolutely. But I also think she is sort of filling into her own, and I guess we'll get to this in a hot sec when we get to our next character, but she's filling her own sort of shy girl with the clipboard and the guitar type yes, role. Yes, I, I agree completely. And I think it's really difficult to talk about Max as a character without talking about the other character that sort of defines her in this movie, which is her mom. And her mom is Amanda, the, yes. the human being that's an actor. 
but the character she plays in Camp Bloodbath is Nancy. So bear with us as we try to make sure we're referring to the same, the, the correct character at any given time. So Harmony, how do you feel about Amanda? And I guess in those, that same term about Nancy. I guess let's start, I guess, by addressing her mom, the character out of character. <laughs> Outside of Camp Bloodbath, yes, in the is, real world. This is where this gets complicated. This is like Jennifer Tilly in Seed of Chucky, kind of like a <laughs> little bit of a mess. But I really like her as a mom. Mm-hmm. Like she, she dies in the first five minutes of the movie in a car accident. And she is like, she is this sort of struggling actress who gets roles but is not like a star she's she's like a character actress she's a bit of a background i guess so it's implied that both she and max are maybe not making a ton of money there's definitely a conversation about bills and i just really like their banter and i really like the way her mom says you know what, we're not going to worry about Bills right now and just tucks him out the window and is just singing and dancing in the car to her favorite song because the Bills will always be there. Let's just uplift ourselves right now, which is sort of a mood that I'm really liking this year. (gasps) Our song! Mom, we need to figure this out. You're such a dork. You know, everything in my life I got wrong. But you I got right. I love you. You know that, right? I'm right there with you on that. I The thing that I like the most about Amanda the character is when we first meet her, and we only get to meet her for a very short period of time. Yeah. We know everything we need to know about her. Uh, We're seeing her as she's coming back from an audition, and the first thing she says is, they really liked me, but they're like, oh, I recognize you from something, and Amanda cites, like, this arc that she did on, like, a crime show or whatever, and they're like, nope, it's Camp Bloodbath. And you just see that look on her face of, like, I'm never going to escape this one thing that I did for the rest of my life. Yeah, and I feel a little bad that this actress has been in a bunch of stuff over like the last 15 years and yet I'm sitting here going yeah I know her best as the uh the woman who takes her top off and is gonna have like a foursome with Harold and Kumar in Harold and Kumar goes to White Castle (laughs) and she's dating the really gross like gremlin looking guy and like honestly I think that sort of makes her perfect to be in it because a lot of people are not going to be like oh I recognize her from 27 dresses or oh I recognize her from Watchmen um they go to those other things and you know that that's not that's not a bad thing it's also not a good thing it's a thing it's a thing and I think that that's really cool about about Amanda's character because all I can think about when, you know, she, this is obviously not the first time this has happened to her as, as an actor. Yeah. And I think frequently about how it's, to me, it's always such a weird thing. And it, this really only happens in the horror genre. Maybe like Disney is probably the only other way. Yeah. Um, I could, I could see that. But we, 
we like want to freeze people in time a lot um, for these movies that they were in when they were younger that like mean a lot to us. Like I have such mixed feelings when people want to talk to Felissa Rose about Sleepaway Camp. Yeah. Be- and, and as someone who has <laughs> gone on record multiple times as a big defender of Sleepaway Camp, it it's definitely really weird because she did that when she was like 13, 14. Right. And, it's and like- doesn't really have a great memory of it. Uh, from what I can gather, like, she's like, oh, yeah, I just, I kind of was in a thing. And then I didn't act for a couple decades. And now I'm this cult icon. Right. And it just, it's so weird to me that people are like, I want you to talk to me about, like, th- this job that you did when you were 13. Like, if somebody wanted to talk to me about jobs that I did when I was 13, I'd be like, I uh, swept hair at a salon. Like, did I- you? Yeah, I sure did. Oh, okay. I had to make some extra money. <laughs> All right. Well, this is the thing that also comes up where we're watching Pen15 right now, because you've already seen it, but you're mm-hmm. showing it to me. And so much of this, I, I can't relate to this show in the slightest. Mm-hmm. Like, it's so, it, it, even the simple thing of, like, the finale of season one, they're at this dance, and I go, this wasn't allowed at the dances at my school. You couldn't play naughty by nature and touch <laughs> each other. This was so not a thing. And you're like, oh, no, that was a big thing in my school. And I'm like, bleh. <laughs> This isn't even like, I grew up as a teen boy, so I don't have these very specific coming-of-age memories. It's just like, none of this is clicking for me. <laughs> so this is one of those instances where I'm like, oh. And, and, bringing, and bringing it back to the final girls, um, I think one of the reasons why this movie uh, probably didn't get the the acclaim that I think it probably deserves is because this story is about max and amanda's relationship this is a mother-daughter horror film yeah and i i'm not as good at this as you but i can't think of any other one of those offhand aside from maybe like halloween 2018 i mean yeah there's definitely ones that exist there's you know halloween 2018 is a good one uh carrie for better or for worse um Uh, has a lot to do with mother and daughter relationships okay i was thinking maybe positive ones but okay (laughs) no those also exist but also like we're not gonna waste time like laundry listing because that's ridiculous but i i think that you know going off of this you know this is something that i can't relate to sort of thing i think that a lot of fans um probably had that response too of like well i can't relate to this therefore like this isn't for me well it's a, a conversation about nuance <laughs> or it's a nuanced conversation where there's a big difference between this isn't for me or i can't relate to this and this is bad like this oh, yeah. this comes up a lot just on the beautiful hellscape that is twitter that i i love twitter because i follow only people who don't annoy me <laughs> <laughs> You're smart. Yeah, well, yeah. But this is a thing that I noticed after our Jennifer's Body episode came out where we have a hour, 40-minute conversation with Jordan Cruciola and there's still dudes who just go, no, this movie's dumb. I I just think it's dumb. And people go, no, it's really fun. And, like, there's a lot of good things. No, it's stupid. I don't like it. Well, this is a bad movie. Right, and it's like, no, it's not a bad movie. It just doesn't relate to you. And if it doesn't relate to you, cool, move the fuck on. Yeah, and that's kind of where I'm at with this movie, which, I mean, full disclosure, I really love this movie. Mm -hmm. And I loved it more on the second watching than the first one, like, a couple years ago. But with movies like Jennifer's Body or The Final Girls or a lot of other, you know, contemporaries to those movies, I really don't care about the opinion from men on these films because it's not about you and it's not 
for you. So I, I truly don't care what you bring to the table. And like, oh, I have an opinion and it matters. Cool, it does. Fine. If you like it, great. If you disagree with me, great. I don't care. I don't need to have this conversation. <laughs> yeah, that's, I'm very much the same way. Like, if people like it, cool. I love that. But ultimately, I struggle with hearing people's opinions about why something is or isn't important if it does not relate to them. Like, I don't need white people to tell me why Get Out is important. I fucking don't need it. I don't care. Mm-hmm. My opinion on that movie kind of doesn't fucking matter. So that's that's how I feel about a lot of a lot of these movies. But that's also not to say that like you can't appreciate or enjoy teen girl movies if you had not been a teen girl. Like that's not what I'm trying to say at all. More so, it's just like when people try to supersede, you know, the the thoughts and the opinions of those that like this is this is their story, then. That can, that's where the water gets a little murky for me. And what's interesting is that Jennifer's body is, you know, written and directed by women. This is not. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is written by tw- two queer men. It's written by Joshua John Miller and Emmy Fortin. A lot of you out there might know uh, Josh Miller as the little brother in Teen Witch. He's a little brother, uh, not a little brother, because he's an adult, just happens to be in like a child's body, um, but in, in Near Dark. And for those who don't know, uh, Joshua John Miller's dad is Jason Miller, who is Father Karras in The Exorcist. So there's there's definitely some parallels between his lived experience and then also this movie that I know we'll touch on a little bit more when we get into into theming. But it's you know th- them being queer men, I think definitely has a lot of influence on how some of these characters are written because these are marginalized voices writing marginalized characters yes and obviously like not all marginalized voices are the same oh absolutely not but there's a big difference between like straight white men's perspective and their takes on stuff in in movie form versus anyone else right like if you just hit that like genetic jackpot where you are in all the power positions then like yeah your perspective is going to be wildly different because while all marginalized identities like we all have different experiences intersectionality is super fucking important um we at least understand what it's like to not be in the power position at least 100 percent of the time yeah and that's the whole point of this podcast basically right. is that like, Hey, I, I kind of not class wise. Like we weren't certainly like, I'm not upper class snub, <laughs> but like, Hey, I was, I was straight and white and male once upon a time ago. Yeah. you So were. I was just rolling in it. And then I squandered my good fortunes <laughs> <laughs> and went and became a homo. <laughs> I like that. It's like a choice that you make or it's like, what did you do after high school? Well, I uh, became a homosexual. That's what I did. <laughs> I blew all my money and my vast riches from my jackpot <laughs> by taking ladies on dates and women's clothing. <laughs> it's yeah. a horrible investment. Welcome, uh, <laughs> welcome to the bottom of the barrel with the rest of us, babe. Oh, God. So, so we kind of talk a little bit about Max and, and her mom and how they are... They're, they're the straight the straight characters of this, um, and straight not, like, as in heterosexual, but straight as in, like, oh, they're the straight men in this comedy, because this is a horror comedy, my friends. Yes. Um, but they are the straight men characters because, good lord, 
Our side characters are a gaggle of weirdos. Oh, this supporting cast is so good. And they all, like, speaking of jackpots, they hit the fucking jackpot with this cast. Oh, yeah. Because so many of them either were already, you know, pretty pretty well established or they just have exploded since this, this film has been released. So, Harmony, I already know the answer to this, but who's your favorite of all the side characters? It's Tina. <laughs> Tina's my favorite. I love her so much. <laughs> well, so what is it about Tina that you love so much? <sighs> so this is going to be a weird comparison, but this is like a, this is a teen boy growing up comparison sort of thing where uh, one of my favorite shows growing up was Ed, Ed, and Eddie. Mm-hmm. And it's the, the, the single D Ed is a moron, but he's written really smart. Mm-hmm. And it's so easy to write really dumb characters and have them suck and be unlikable and they're just stupid and whatever. But Tina's not. Tina is so well written and like the writing's really good and they give her like good material. But oh my god, this actress takes it to an entirely new level by just committing to just the crazy archetype that is the like slutty slasher girl thing that exists in horror movies. I also love Tina. I think she is hilarious. I think that Angela Trimber's delivery is absolute perfection, scene after scene after scene. Mm -hmm. And I mean, kind of an aside, but like Angela Trimber is also currently battling breast cancer. So, you know, if you are a person of faith or if you've got some candles to light or just some, you know, good vibes to send out into the universe, send them to Angela because she fucking rules and For real. if you are not already in love with her from her roles in movies like The Feels, uh, definitely watch The Final Girls because you will just fall in love with her because she's so endearing. Like, no matter how, like, kind of dumb her her material is, because that's who that character is. Like, it's not dumb as in, like, who's dumb, but, like, it's dumb as in, like, she's an airhead. But she just makes everything so great and you just want to see more of her. She has my second favorite scene in the entire movie. The, my favorite being the climax because it's a perfect scene. Mm-hmm. But my second favorite scene in the movie is uh, the uh, booby trap, quote unquote, to catch Billy, the Jason <laughs> Voorhees type slasher. And oh my God, her striptease performance to Cherry Pie where she has to like tear off duct taped oven mitts and a life vest. And she is like hyped up on Adderall and is sweating. <laughs> and she's amazing because she goes so hard. Well, <laughs> I'm, I mean, I'm hoping that people have seen the movie by now because otherwise I'm like, what the f- oven mitts? What's yes. happening here? Um, but it just makes perfect sense because for a huge chunk of this movie, because she is, you know, the, the, the slutty character, so to speak, um, they have to prevent Billy from showing up, so they put her in, like, a life vest and oven mitt so she can't take her clothes off. So you're limiting your actor already by essentially putting them in this giant costume, so everything she does has to be, like, big movements, big facial expressions, voice changes, and she just, oh god, she just nails it. She has one of the best lines in the movie, which is, Why does he hate my boobs? Because they're not big. And I can relate to that. I can't. (laughs) You don't say. So if Tina is your favorite, okay, so I won't take Tina as my favorite. Um, I'm going to be honest, 
My my favorite of the side characters is Duncan, played by Thomas Middleditch. Oh. Because I know so many Duncans. <laughs> I know so many boys that are just so passionate about the things that they love that it is impossible for them to talk about the things they love without sounding like the biggest fucking dork. And I think that it's endearing because Duncan, to me... He's the anti-Randy Meeks mm-hmm. from Scream. Like, Randy Meeks in Scream is that insufferable, gatekeeping, asshole, fuckface horror fanboy that I want to kick in the teeth all the time. Duncan is like, hey, there's enough for all of us, and we should all be loving this. He's so positive. Well, I think the difference between Duncan and Randy is that Randy is like, this is my world, and you're not in it, and I'm going to lecture you on it, versus Duncan, who's like, no, let me let me take you into my world and show you why it's cool. Yes. He's much more welcoming in that sense. Yes, I think, I think Duncan is great, and like, getting Thomas Middleditch sort of before he's now exploded into mm-hmm. popularity I mean, he's been around forever, but, like, he's on fucking cell phone commercials now, and he's got Netflix specials with Ben oh, Schwartz. God, Middle Ditch and Schwartz is so funny. Oh, God, it's it's so hysterical. Oh, my God, this did turn into a Sonic the Hedgehog podcast. How did you do this to me? You're welcome. <laughs> but, but I love Duncan. I love Sonic. <laughs> I love that we have sort of this, this perspective of, of the horror fan, because this is a... Uh, you know, this is a very meta horror film, so you kind of need that character. Yeah, it, well, you, I don't know if you need it, but it definitely helps a lot. You have this in, like, Cabin in the Woods or Shaun of the Dead, where there are other, like, critically acclaimed horror comedies that serve their genres, Mm -hmm. and they also have that, like, someone kind of aware of what is happening. It's it's like when you're watching a zombie movie and no one uses the word zombie because zombies don't exist in fiction in the world. Right. Like, you kind of need that for a really self-aware film like this. Yeah, it's one of my biggest annoyances is, is how they don't ever call them zombies in zombie movies. I'm just like, come on. Like... You can't say that. You can't say the Z word. <laughs> it just, it's just—it's just so frustrating because then, like, those same movies will make references to other pop culture, and I'm like, does this? Does the whole genre of film just doesn't exist in your world? Okay, fine, whatever. <laughs> just makes me irritated. This has been I'm irritated corner with BJ. You're welcome. <laughs> so my other favorite character to just you know keep going on this sidecast is Kurt. Oh, God. Played by Mr. Workaholic himself, Adam Devine. Oh, God, he's so funny. Oh, my God, he's so funny. And I'm assuming the majority of his lines are improv based on how many takes they use in the blooper reel for the credits. Mm -hmm. And the funny thing is I hate the Workaholic guys in Workaholics, but I absolutely love them in everything else they're in. That's understandable. I think... I don't know what it is about Adam Devine or Devine. I never know how to say his last name. My bad. This is not a grammar podcast. Um, I I don't know what it is about him because on paper, I should hate him. And I should also hate this character. But I can't. I love him. I think he's hysterical. <laughs> I would watch every spinoff that he's in. I want them to cast him in other fictional slasher movies where he's talking about how he's a cherry stealer and how he's working out and just everything that he says cracks my shit up. Gay dudes can't have kids. They're too busy going to discos. <laughs> oh, God. Or is it, or it's like, he's just like, gay dudes are too busy going to discos and having sex with each other. It's a pretty cool lifestyle. And it's like, lines like that, I'm like, okay, yeah, this was, this is clearly written by, you know, 
to gay men because they're they're not only allowing him to be like a homophobic idiot because he definitely does say fag at one point but then they're also having him acknowledge that like wait why the fuck pretty cool though like why the fuck do we hate gay people because like that's kind of awesome so i love that love 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 that but it's it's his delivery for me um well he doesn't blink and he like oh, just God. keeps beating the joke in until it's about to not be funny why are you dressed knows- like that are you poor people is it because you're poor like oh Ugh. fuck it's so good see i really like the kurt character because he reminds me a lot of going back to a uh, the just one of the guys episode he's he's like a buddy type mm-hmm. where he's He's a bad dude. Well, Buddy's not a bad dude. Buddy's just young and stupid and a pervert. But, like, Kurt's a bad dude, but he's also... No one is on his side. Right. <laughs> like, he's very funny, and he's clearly a pervert, and his writing is good. But, like, the movie is like, oh, no, he's a tool. Like, we're, right. we're not making you sympathetic towards him in the slightest. Yeah, no, not at all. Like, you're supposed to be like, this guy sucks. Yes, that's called good heat. You hate <laughs> them for the right reason. Oh, wrestling. Wrestling, wrestling. Everything is wrestling. So one of the bigger names in this is Alia Shawkat, who a lot of people probably know from Green Room or more than likely Arrested Development. I, I know her from, from Broad City because she's the twin cest like <laughs> episode with of Alana Glazer. Yeah, 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 she she very much Which is. of like we ref, we're watching this and I'm like, oh I remember her from that episode and then the movie wraps up and it's like four hours later and I go, Oh wait, she's also in Green Room. <laughs> <laughs> but she she plays Gertie, um, hopefully named for, you know, Baby Drew Barrymore in E.T., who I love so very much. Um, but she's Max's best friend, and she she's kind of the straight shooter. She's also Duncan's um, stepsister, which has, like, a fun little connection there because they have fun little sibling banter. Oh, yeah, they're just constantly ragging on each other. Yeah, it's it's really wonderful. But Alia Shawkat is such a great best friend character. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that she's she's really empathetic towards Max and like how hard, you know, the situation is that, you know, they're sucked into a, a horror movie and that's bad enough. But Max is now face to face with what is essentially her mom who has died. And like, that's hard. Yes. Um, so Gertie is, you know, a very good friend to her in that she's trying to help everybody survive, but also like understanding that like this shit sucks for her best friend. Yeah. She is, you know, the centerpiece of what is the, one of the most heartfelt scenes in the entire movie where the, uh, the booby trap doesn't go exactly as planned. And she and the, Mean girl, whose name I think is Vicky. Yeah, Vicky. Yeah. Uh, played by Nina Dobrev. Yeah, so they get trapped under a bookshelf, and they're basically, like, saying, like, don't come and save us. You need to escape because, like, you're going to get killed if you try and save us from, you know, this flaming machete situation that's about to happen. Mm-hmm. So it's it's really well done. Like, the, 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 I'm a sucker for, like, an emotional score. Like, mm-hmm. that's what always gets me. Like, it just... Like, I can get there, and I'm committed just on the acting and, like, the scene, but then they put that score, and I go, mm, okay, I'm there now. But she is, like, her her facial acting and her delivery is so good in that scene when they just, like, pull pull that string, and it's like, cool, this room's about to be engulfed in fire, and we're gonna burn to death, and we're just gonna, we're gonna try and go out like champs. And she also has a lot of really nice moments with uh, Blake, who's played by Tori and Thompson, who is part of the, you know, 1980s camp bloodbath camp counselor team. Um, and he's kind of this, like, 
hip 80s guy with like a ton of buttons and like one dangly earring. Oh, it's like a quartz or something. Yeah, it's so cool. <laughs> but the two of them together, you know, they they get each other, dude. Um, and they, they have these really nice moments where everyone's lives are at stake. But there's like this like sort of budding romance between them. And it's very pure and very cute. And I, I don't know why I haven't seen Tori Thompson in more things because I think he is so endearing on screen. Mm -hmm. And he's just like, I don't know, like he's on screen and he's like that guy that's like, here, we're here to have a good time. Everybody feel good. And I'm like, I need more of that energy in my life. I just really like him. He's just very nice and pleasant. Yeah. And then he has the big reveal where he smiles and boy, he's got some headgear. Oh, it's so cute. I love it so much. It's a great moment too. Mm -hmm. It's so good. Um, you, you sort of touched on her, um, earlier, but we also have, we also have Vicky in here. And, uh, what, what do you think of this, this, you know, bitchy mean girl? Vicky has actually probably like the most full arc maybe of any of the side characters. Mm -hmm. Cause most people are pretty much one note cause they're, a lot of the supporting cast are, you know, caricatures and tropes that exist in a slasher movie they're right. not complicated right so as one of the you know real world people who are sucked into the movie she has a little more going on and she starts the movie by being like the show-offy catty awful ex mm-hmm. of chris who is uh max's like kind of boy interest thing and chris is a, a, a little milk toast he's a little wonder bread like, yeah, I feel bad. I was like, I didn't even mention him, but it's kind of like, he's not really that important. He's <laughs> handsome, and he's nice, and that's all his character has to be. Yep. I guess he is quite <laughs> a daddy in Vikings. Yeah, like, that was very alarming for me, because this is one of those moments where I've watched this movie uh, pretty frequently, but it's been a while, and I was like, oh, God, I remember this face. Like, what did he do after this? Oh, shit, Vikings. Wow. Yeah, so... So, sorry, sorry, Chris. Put a Chris. beard on that man. Woo! Yeah, anyway. some people really benefit from beards. But, uh, yeah, so Vicky is, like, really catty and really awful at the beginning of the movie, and she is just so unlikable. But as the movie kind of, you know, ramps up and it becomes, like, about survival more than, like, get out of the... We don't have to just get out of the movie. We have to live to get out of the movie. Mm-hmm. She has this realization where she goes, great, I'm I'm the bitchy mean girl trope, and we're over halfway into the movie. I'm going to die, so I'm going to come clean and say I was an asshole, and I wasn't a very good friend to you, and I'm sorry. And then she goes out when Gertie does, and it's she's got a very good arc. I They did not have to give her character, but they did. I really, really like the arc that Vicky has. Because it's this moment of of accountability for her. Like, she clearly has some insecurities that she's not really tapping into. But it takes a lot for somebody to own up to to their mistakes. And she's not even just owning up because she thinks it's going to help save her skin. She knows knows how this ends. Mm -hmm. Like, it's halfway to the movie. Like, she's going to die. She does not have to apologize for this stuff. But she's doing it because she knows it's the right thing to do. Yes. And I really enjoy that about her. And she and uh, she and Alia Shawkat's character, uh, Gertie, have my my genuinely, like, favorite exchange in the entire movie outside of, like, the, you know, the climax, which is, uh, 
they're determining who's going to be the final girl because Paula, who we did not talk about at all, who's played by Chloe Bridges. That's because Paula's not she's really in much really of the movie. really not in it. She, and, and the reason she's not in it is because in the movie Camp Bloodbath, Paula is the final girl character. Um, she can't be the final girl character in this movie because it's supposed to be Max. So we got to get her out as soon as we can. Yes. So she just sort of shows up, is a badass, and then is killed. Yeah, she, she blows up. And... Honestly, I really like that setup because Duncan's like, no, just stick with Paula and Paula will have this really cool death scene and the movie will be over and then we'll live if we just keep with Paula. And the weird comparison I thought of when I was watching this is uh, To the Warriors. Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Which is one of my favorite movies from that era. And that movie also sets up as like, oh, here's the guy who's clearly in charge of this gang, the Warriors, and he's out after like the first scene. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh God, we are we are a rudderless ship and we have to get back to Coney Island. And that's <laughs> kind of what happens where now everyone's like, oh, we can't rely on badass Paula. We have to now figure out another plan. Yeah. So that's... That's definitely what's going on here, and I I think that that was a really smart choice to make. Mm -hmm. Um, But when we've got to figure out who's going to be the final girl, you know, they're like, oh, well, it has to be Max, because Max is a virgin. And Max is like, well, Gertie's a virgin. And Gertie's like, "Mm, not anymore. It was this one guy, you know, the guy with the mustache. And Vicky, trying to be a bitch, is like, isn't he autistic? Yeah. Yeah. He is. But he's also very romantic. And it's, ugh, like, that's such a good moment, because it's like... Yeah, you fucking bitch. Like, that doesn't make him not, like, a redeemable person or somebody worth being interested in, you bitch. Yes, and that's also, (laughs) one, that that autism wasn't a thing in the 80s. Right. But, so, I'm sure the other cast members are like, what does that mean? Like, it was a thing, it just wasn't... Well, yeah, we didn't have a diagnosed term for it yet. Right, or at least not commonplace, but anyway. But, I, I like that that happens because... That's not a defense people ever get to. Like, usually, like, that's a punchline, and no one no one punches back, mm-hmm. you know? So it's actually really refreshing to see that in this movie. Yeah, I, I'm right there with you. And that's that's a really good point. A lot of times, like, autism reveals tend to be used as punchlines. Um, and, yeah, it's very seldom that they punch back, and she just does it just seamlessly. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. So there we have it. We have our cast. We have our, our gaggle of characters. So let's talk about uh, what are what are some theming and and sort of messaging that you pull away from this movie. An interesting thing that I, I kind of have sitting about this movie is that obviously the main story of this is about Max and her mom, but her mom's not her mom. Her mom is Nancy, who is a character played by her mom, <laughs> and Nancy doesn't know she's her mom. Mm-hmm. So in that big big kind of mess which when you put it in words sounds a lot more complicated than it actually yeah when you watch it it makes complete sense it's it's so much more seamless and easy to understand in like the context of the movie but the whole point is it's like about their relationship and nancy is about overcoming the expectation of her Mm -hmm. she's supposed to be like the second person who dies in the movie after this random hippie girl who gets off having sex with hunky hiker (laughs) And that's her role in the group. She is the shy girl with the clipboard and the guitar, and she has sex with Kurt on a waterbed, which, if anybody's ever had sex on a waterbed, please tell me if it was <laughs> awful, because I always imagine that it is. But that's that's it. And through, like, basically everything about this movie getting knocked off course, 
she now has to grow and become someone new and and redefine herself in the context of this movie. And I think that that is really like the big message that Max has because her character is not super well defined. Like mm-hmm. she's a little ambiguous and you brought up like the Bella Swan thing or something, you know, that's kind of why. And I sort of look at it as her character is not important it's the situation that's important Mm -hmm. any any horror movie and any slasher in particular where all of the characters are like they're they're meat they're they're meat to bleed and they are expendable (laughs) and they don't matter and the how they die is more memorable than who they are Mm -hmm. when you're in a survival situation who you are doesn't matter this it's about that survival and what you do in those situations that really define you as a character in these type of films. First off, that's beautiful. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and and secondly, I that's exactly it. I mean, slasher films get a really bad reputation because they they are formulaic and that's why things like this movie or Scream or Cabin in the Woods can exist because they're sort of like ripping apart what makes a slasher film tick and then showing it in a different way. Mm-hmm. But when you look at all of these characters, they all have this sort of idea of like, well, this is my role and this is what I have to do and this is my my, my cog in the machine. And in a really weird way, and obviously this is not a perfect metaphor because this does require people to, you know, like, like Gertie and Vicky to sacrifice themselves. But in order for all of us to make it out alive, in order for all of us to succeed we kind of have to work together and know where we all fit. If we're all constantly fighting for, you know, that that top position, like, oh, I have to be the final girl, like, I have to do this. The final girl is not any more important than any other role. Everyone just has to work together to make this happen. And that's what happens. They work together. They all die so that Max can be the final girl. And then, you know, they wake up in the hospital and surprise, it's the sequel, spoiler alert. But, like... They get out alive thus far. Yeah, but it's like, but they they get out alive, and it's because all of them worked together and knew like this is where my strength is, Mm -hmm. and I think that that's really beautiful. Again, not a perfect metaphor because I don't want people to be like, well, in order for us to be successful, some people have to die. That's not what I'm saying. No, (laughs) that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that if there is a goal at hand and we can work together to all come out on the other side together, then we should be fucking working together. Yes, and you know, I look at it as. You know, slasher films have have a formula. I mean, movie plots in general have everything a formula. is derivative of something. Yes, exactly. But that formula is like a recipe, and not everything can be the meat and the potatoes. But what you need those you need those spices that make the meat and potatoes good. Otherwise, you're having suburban white people food, right? And, and nobody, nobody wants, wants that. that. So, <laughs> so you end up with you know these little pieces that make the whole in the recipe of a slasher film you cannot be the final girl without other people dying to service the plot this works in an act of fiction obviously not in non-fiction right. it's not the same thing <laughs> but like i totally get what you're saying in that sense and when we originally planned out to do this month's schedule of movies we we kind of sat down and we're like okay let's do this let's do this let's do this and the final girls was one of the first movies bj wanted to do for this month 
And uh, I brought Casper to the table, which I really liked our conversation about Casper and was surprised by our how deep it got. Mm-hmm. This movie is kind of Casper part two because it's also dealing with death in a lot of these same sort of ways with how like a child mourns the loss of a parent. And so that brings me back up to when I was mentioning earlier about one of the writers' father being, you know, Father Karras and The Exorcist. And the reason that that is important is because this is a movie where Max is not only dealing with the fact that she has lost her parent, but if she wants to watch her mom in, like, her most famous role, she has to watch her mom die. And her mom dying is one of the most memorable and important moments in slasher movie history. Mm-hmm. That is a lot to unpack. And that is something that, obviously, Joshua John Miller has to do because Father Karras dies in The Exorcist in quite possibly one of the most memorable scenes. Mm-hmm. And I, I I don't know what that would feel like. I don't know what it would feel like to know that in one of the most iconic movies ever made and something that they teach in college, academic courses, things that are brought back for retrospectives, that it's just your dad dying. Like, that's fucking crazy to me. And what The Final Girls does is explores this idea of grief, of losing a parent in a really creative way. And what's interesting is this is something that also happens in... Grief is becoming more and more commonplace in horror movies. Mm-hmm. Um, especially it, As it should, because there's a lot of death in horror yeah. movies. <laughs> um, especially in, in movies that um, sort of are doing this like subversive genre thing. Um, another one that I, I really love is I think about like the Happy Death Day movies Mm -hmm. and in particular Happy Death Day 2 because there's that moment of you know Tree's mom who has passed and having you know the ability to like find a world in which she and her mom can be together again and like that is so hard and I know that Christopher Landon also lost a parent Mm -hmm. and that that just kind of like guts me to to know that Horror is beautiful because it is a medium in which we can explore the absolute darkest parts of humanity. Mm-hmm. We can explore fear and danger, but we can also explore grief and mourning and what it's like to really lose somebody. And I think I just think that it's beautiful that a lot of horror creatives are taking those lived experiences that they have that are ugly and that are hard and that are real and turning them into like these really beautiful stories in a genre that, you know, frequently just gets dismissed as like cheap. Yeah, it's, it's, it's considered a schlocky genre by, you know, most elite film critics and fans. Right. But I, I've learned more about grief and overcoming what that feels like from horror films than pretty much any amount of therapy that I've had. And uh, listeners, <laughs> that's a lot of therapy. <laughs> yes, it is. And with all of like that backstory in mind, I really love this film. Like, I guess to pull back the curtain entirely for this month, this is my favorite movie that we watched this month. And when you take, you know, horror comedies that I... I enjoy very much. Uh, we'll use like Tucker and Dale versus Evil as a really great example because it's also a subverted slasher film. Mm-hmm. And 
this movie feels so much more substantial and significant than that. Or, you know, or a cabin in the woods, or a Shaun of the Dead, or anything else in its contemporary sort of horror comedy genre. This movie has so much to say that it, it's it's a comedy with a lot of weight to it. Mm-hmm. I think there's, there's a lot of heart um, in this piece. And, you know, again, I think one of the reasons that it probably isn't as talked about um, is because this is such a pro-woman's story. Yeah, and that's probably the person who got that DVD and then went, nope, and it ended mm-hmm. up at Half Price Books. I mean, I didn't want to say it. I don't want to make assumptions. That's but probably how it ended up there. That's probably exactly how it ended up there. Yeah. Um, because thinking about sort of what this movie also has to say about womanhood, I think can go back to what we were talking about with like, you know, that's the role in the group of, you know, what everyone has to do because... A lot of times we think about slashers in terms of, like, a hierarchy, right? Mm -hmm. Like, the final girl is the most important, and then everybody else sort of falls in line underneath it. And what this movie is saying is, you know, not only is there, you know, everybody's parts are important. Like, there's no no small parts, only small actors. (laughs) Like, it's giving that message, but that message is also extending out to aspects of womanhood. Because these archetypes for, especially for the women characters, are very heavily influenced by gender roles and gender expectations. Mm -hmm. So we have your final girl who is supposed to be, you know, this innocent, virginal. Paula's innocent. Yeah, right. But like (laughs) supposed to be like the virgin, like whatever. And then you also have, like, the the mean, bitchy girl who's, you know, supposed to be this, like, you know, Chris character from Carrie. And then you have, like, you know, the, the slutty role that's supposed to be Tina. And, you know, these are all words that we use to try to put women down. Mm-hmm. And the final girls is basically saying, like... No, you can be all of these things. You can be any one of these archetypes. You don't have to be defined by it, but, like, it's cool that you are because you're helping us move the story forward. And that's what the whole point of this movie is about, you know, unwinding that expectation that you're only valuable if you are a virgin and if not, you are expendable. Mm -hmm. And Nancy is a really, really awesome character for that because... Obviously, Max helps her by basically being like, no, 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 don't have sex with Kurt. He sucks. <laughs> Which right. is what any friend should do. <laughs> Every friend should tell you not to have sex with Kurt because he sucks. <laughs> yes, or any Kurt-like types. Yes. Friends don't let friends fuck Kurt-like types. <laughs> yes. So, obviously, like, they grow together, which is really nice, both from, like, a friendship sort of aspect because Nancy does not know that she is played by max's mom Mm -hmm. but also just from like this from max's perspective of the mother-daughter thing where you are growing because of these responsibilities and these expectations that are put on you now and i really really love nancy's character because she gets to choose who she is even if it involves dying because the whole reason they are not able to stop billy and kill him is because there are two final girls left and she has this like clarity or this epiphany when she realizes that that says you've already like taught me so much i've already done so much more than i was expected of me i 
was supposed to die second on a waterbed, and that was it. You know, picture wrap on Nancy. But she's lived this long, and she's going to go out there into a field and dance taking her shirt off to Betty David's eyes. And it's going to be like a really powerful emotional scene because she's going out on her own terms. And she did not have that option before. Mm-hmm. I That scene gets me for so many reasons. I mean, obviously, uh, for those that don't know, Betty Davis is my favorite song of all time. Yes, I got it for you as a present one year on 45. And how did I respond to that? You cried. I sure did. Because <laughs> I am a cry baby. <laughs> yeah, it happens a lot. It's okay. I'm okay with that. I own... I own the fact that I'm a crier. To quote Brendan Fraser in Bedazzled, I'm not afraid of them. I, I wear my tears like pride little badges. <laughs> That's not the exact quote, but I love that moment. Anyway, um, so that moment gets me for, obviously, you get that needle drop, my favorite song, like it's just going to pull on my heartstrings. But what gets me is Nancy's going out there, and at this point, she does know that she's, she's Max's, like, the actress is Max's mom in real life. Yeah. And she has this moment where she's dancing with, essentially with her daughter. Her daughter is, you know, sitting in what I, it looks to be a church. Yeah, it's like a little chapel. Why is there a fucking summer camp chapel? Where did we go to camp, friends? It was probably built in like the 60s. Yeah, that's true. Um, But they're going to, you know, she's sitting in this, in this chapel and she's dancing to, Betty Davis eyes with her daughter having a great time and she's going to die. And because we did not mention at the top when Amanda, the real life, uh, you know, person that's Max's mom dies in the car accident. It's because they're singing along to Betty Davis eyes together and Max accidentally spills something. It derails the moment and then they get in a car accident. Mm -hmm. So the circumstances surrounding both of these deaths are pretty, pretty close to uh, what they were. But going out on her own terms, it just, it feels like she's she's taking back all of this power that she did not know that she had. Exactly. And in that moment, she's, she's giving everything, basically, so that her daughter can live. And, mm-hmm. like, that's a nice, like, guardian parental thing thing to do like i'm not saying every parent should be like i'm gonna go kill myself so that you can succeed but it the symbolism of that is like Mm -hmm. really really powerful in the scene i think so too it's this idea that like you know you you have the the rest of your life ahead of you and i want you to be able to enjoy it and if this is what it takes to let that happen then this is this is what i'm gonna do yeah because if max had died and nancy would have lived then the movie probably would have just restarted without all of your, you know, real life characters. Mm-hmm. Yep, it, I, I agree completely. And another aspect of this climax that I love so much is that it's all about redefining yourself and sometimes having to leave things behind. You know, in this case, through like the mourning process, like you know, you have to just move on. But just in general, sometimes things have to metaphorically die for you to be happy and live and do what you want. And like, as a trans person, like that's a, that's a really potent thing to see in this final scene. I, I've definitely heard people before in sort of the, like the parent groups that I've talked to about, you know, just 
LGBTQ acceptance and becoming more affirming parents for their kids, um, a lot of them describe describe it as a mourning process, which it's it's really easy for us to kind of roll our eyes at because it's like shut the fuck up, but mm-hmm. at the same time. I like I kind of understand it and it's not even in the sense of like gender identity it can also just be sexuality is that we we socialize people to believe that life is supposed to be a certain way that you're going to fit these certain roles and when you find out something like okay well your child is gay or your child is trans it bucks all of those assumptions that you've already made and yeah we know that those assumptions are shitty we know that they should not exist But I can't really be super mad at people when they fall into it because they're getting the same social messaging that the rest of us are being fed. Mm -hmm. So it makes sense to me that they're going to have that issue. Do I think they're dramatic about it and they need to get their shit together and move on? Yeah, but guess what? That's the message of this movie. (laughs) Get your shit together and move on. Yeah. um, Yeah, my mom was one of of those people who... Mm -hmm. Who definitely had this tearful, like, I feel like I'm losing my child thing when I transitioned. And, like, I get it. You've got feelings and they're valid or whatever. Which is not to, like, dismiss <laughs> people's feelings. But, like, the word valid specifically to dismiss that as a term. Because it doesn't mean anything anymore. But everything about this mourning process that my mom had was all about her. And my mom is, in a sense, it felt like my mom was like, no, I mean, if you bleed out, like, that's fine. I'll, I'm, I'm not going to be the one to get killed by Billy. I'll be the final girl. And when she says things like, oh, well, what will the neighbors think of me as a parent? Because I raised you, you know, mm-hmm. it's uh, you didn't get your shit together and move on. Exactly. Exactly. Like, you are allowed to have those feelings, those those negative feelings. But, like, once you let them consume you and sort of take over your life, uh, that's a problem. And this movie is telling you, that's a problem. Yes. And it's weird because it's almost this, like, it it, it reminds me a lot of kind of gatekeeping, right? Like, it's parents have this idea, like, this is the way things are supposed to be, and if it's not this way, then it's wrong. Mm -hmm. And I think that that can also pair with how a lot of people feel about this movie for not even just the the gender aspect of it and that like this is a woman's a, a movie about women but that this is also a PG-13 horror movie. Oh, the PG-13 horror films. <laughs> and I need people to know that when you said oh, the PG-13 horror movies, you were not saying that to disparage it. No, I quite love them. A lot of my favorites are <laughs> PG-13. But more so, it's this weird elitism surrounding films being rated PG-13 as if that makes them less enjoyable or, like, less authentically horror because they're not super extreme. Mm-hmm. And it really grinds my gears because there needs to be horror films for people that are in that PG-13 age range. Mm-hmm. One, because we need to be able to have things that people can graduate into like you can't just be like oh you like hocus pocus here's cannibal holocaust like no there's gotta be some shit in between you really picked the starkest contrast you possibly could have you're welcome (laughs) 
you know what? But, but you can't. Like, you can't just jump people like that. Like, that's ridiculous. That's like telling some... Like, think about it in terms of food. That'd be like somebody, like, having, like, a nice little pepper and being like, Oh, you like jalapeno poppers? Here's the one chip challenge, you bitch. Like... That's where you jump from <laughs> lemon pepper to ghost pepper? Yeah, like, you can't do that. <laughs> Those wing sauces are very different. You need some habanero in between. Like, come on. So, yes, I think that there is such importance and, and validity to PG-13 horror films and I it just drives me fucking crazy when people can't get behind them. And I've been noticing that like so much lately because we recently got the trailers for the movie Freaky which I was super excited about and the either craft sequel or reboot both I guess. I think it's technically a sequel. Yeah. It's, I... It functions as a as a reboot. Mm-hmm. But we got both those and immediately like so many of these like gatekeeping horror bros were like, oh, it's dumb because it's PG-13 and it looks like a CW show and I'm mad about this because it looks stupid and it's like Black Christmas 2019. And for those who don't know, I got really fucking heated about that kind of thing. Yes. Because I get very uh, heated about that in general. One of the main reasons why this podcast even exists is because teen girl movies or just in general, anything that is catering or targeting women um, is frequently seen as less than or whatever. And that can be anything from a movie like The Craft Legacy or White Claw. It doesn't fucking matter. Mm -hmm. But there are definitely people who are going to to write it off specifically because like it's for girls and blah 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 but when it comes to comments like oh it's, it looks like the cw that gets really frustrating to me because people have a tendency not to not recognize that they're not part of the target demo anymore mm-hmm. um i think it's it, it's either college humor or funny or die or one of them but there's this amazing short film like sketch thing that they do and it's all about um why mtv doesn't play music videos anymore yeah and it's great because it's like somebody who's like oh why don't they play music videos anymore and it's just this guy going off about how like that's not what you know the teens today want you don't watch this anymore if you did maybe things wouldn't have changed but you grew up and stopped watching it so guess what i don't fucking care about your opinion anymore music was better in my day like it's just this it's this old man yells at cloud bullshit that I, I just cannot get behind. And it's frustrating because there was a really amazing piece in uh, Shudder's newsletter, The Bite, which mm-hmm. if you if any of you have Shudder, um, make sure that you're signed up for The Bite because it's really amazing. It comes in your email, I think like once a week. Yes. Um, if you don't have Shudder, what the fuck are you doing? It's like $7 <laughs> and you get every horror movie you can imagine. It's just wonderful. Um, but in this issue of The Bite, this writer, um, Gory Corey, who is only 17, mm-hmm. wrote about how her contemporaries and like her classmates are not into horror. And it's not because, like, oh, kids today are too weak or whatever. It's because nothing relates to them anymore. Yeah. All of the horror movies that are being made are either, like, remakes or reboots or stuff that is, you know, the the elevated horror that's, you know, way, way above, you know, the, the mindset of most teenagers. 
or it's like these these nostalgia pull eighties reboots, and they're like they're some of their parents were like kids at that time. Like this isn't gonna resonate with them. The eighties ended thirty years ago, which is like people no it, the eighties ended forty years like uh, nineteen eighty was forty years ago. The eighties ended. 30 yes, you're years better at ago. math than me. I'm just very <laughs> heated. <laughs> yes, they ended thirty years ago, so it, it's really frustrating. So like it looks like a CW show. Well, guess what? That age group is watching CW shows. So shut the fuck up. (laughs) Like, it's not for you. Not everything is for you. But yeah, in that piece, I really liked it because the way nostalgia is, like, preyed on. Like, people should be excited for the new craft movie that's coming out. And, like, hey, for anybody who doesn't follow us on Twitter, next week we're doing the craft. (laughs) So that worked out very (laughs) well for us. That timing was, like, really, really great on our part because that was a happy accident. But... The way nostalgia is catered to, um, I used to work in vintage, and generally something was considered vintage after 25 years, and so that's kind of like the waves of nostalgia that sort of swing. They go in 20, 25-year cycles. We should be getting nostalgic for, like, 1999 right now, you know, maybe, like, 95, not, you know, 1985 still, and I realize, like, the 80s is, like, the the, the the golden era for a lot of people. It's, like, the best decade for horror films. And I definitely, like, love the 80s for horror films. But there's that's not it. That's not the only thing. And we shouldn't be aspiring to specifically cater towards fans who grew up and found their appreciation for this genre in that decade. Yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you 100%. And it, it just it just frustrates me because a lot of times that idea of like, oh, I don't like it is because, you know, th- what they're essentially saying is I don't relate to this. Yes. Like, this does not speak to me. And what's frustrating is this this goes back into how people, I think, feel about the final girls and how like, well, I can't relate to this because I'm not a girl or I can't relate to this because whatever bullshit excuse you're going to give marginalized identities, whether it's marginalized gender, marginalized races, what have you, we have all been spending our entire lives looking for characters that we can see ourselves in. And a lot of times having to do headcanons, mm-hmm. a lot of times having to do mental gymnastics to see ourselves in something. Like this is obviously a sweeping generalization, but something that I love hearing about um, on the podcast Dead for Filth with Michael Varadi is he talks to a lot of cis gay men who will say, oh, I saw myself as the final girl. I've always identified in that. That's not saying that they want to be women. They're not saying like, oh, I want to be a girl. They're saying, no, the aspects of that character and how that character is treated, I identify with. And it's just so frustrating to me that we have all been able to do this for a very long time. But then people will watch a movie like The Final Girls and be like, I don't get it. Or they'll watch a movie like Jennifer's Body. I don't get it. Well, maybe look outside of something that is you know, carved out of marble to look identically like you for the first time in your fucking life. For real. You were holding that laugh in. I was watching you hold that laugh I had a lot of giggles because I love it when you get, I love it when you get really Italian because people can't see this, but you are gesturing (laughs) quite intensely with your hands, like a lot of hand talking. I can't help it. (laughs) 
it's part of my culture. It's part of my personality. I can't help it. It just happens. Yeah, I also love when you get saucy because, like, obviously that was that was a caricature there, but like also the oh, Chicago the accent Chicago leaks starts, out. Yeah, it's, it's really nice. Yeah, it's it's pretty intense. Like, if I get really heated or if I'm really tired, then like suddenly everything gets a little lazier and I get angrier and it's more Chicago. Yeah, it's it's a problem. <laughs> it's a big problem. But like to, to really wrap up the giggles there and bring it kind of back. That's the whole point of what we're doing here by analyzing, you know, women's media is you don't have to have grown up as a woman or be a woman or, you know, you you can enjoy these films and get something out of them regardless. And to tie this back to the Casper Part 2 thing that we're, I sort of mentioned earlier, I think a lot of guys have issues, particularly for horror, because... There is just more gatekeeping for this genre of film than any other one for some reason. And the second closest... I think it's superhero movies. <sighs> okay, no, that's fair. <laughs> I that mean, one, that's, that that's one, recent, though. So. That, that by, by sheer capita, yes. But by percentages, yes, I okay. would say horror. I agree, I agree. But films like this have to deal with female emotions. And I remember when Black Christmas came out last year... And you and I both loved it. Like, we had mm-hmm. so much fun in that oh, yeah. movie. We had a great time. And, like, it's not a perfect film, but, like, it's it's very enjoyable. It is so much better than the, like, 2004 one that physically made me angry <laughs> watching it. Um, actually, it's 2006, but... Okay, whatever. well, fuck off. <laughs> not the point. <laughs> but, like, I w- people online were furious about it. It was getting, like, blasted with reviews. On opening night, like, more than people had actually physically been able to see it, just going, it's an angry feminist movie. I'm mad about it. Which is fucking dumb, because the original one's an angry feminist movie, but whatever. Yes, and that's the point, though, is that... <laughs> All these guys were saying, like, oh, what do you mean? You're saying I don't like women if I don't like this movie? Um, I love Jamie Lee Curtis, and I love Sigourney Weaver, and I love all of, like, these female-fronted movies, but I guess those don't matter. And it's like, yeah, but, okay, none of those movies have to deal with how these women are feeling. This is what it ties back to, is this? their situations are about survival, mm-hmm. not necessarily about who they are and, like, their emotions and how they're dealing with grief. It's about, I have to kill this alien. I have to not get murdered by my brother. Like, that's what these situations are. And then you don't have to deal with the deep dive of, like, female issues and female emotions. You're now just looking at, like, not to discredit these characters, but it's kind of like a male surrogate. These are female characters written by men, not designed to be as deep as, you know, certain characters like the Final Girls. And that's obviously a sweeping generalization, and Ellen Ripley is, like, the most badass woman in, like, cinema history. But, like, you get what I'm saying when I say that, though, right? Yes, no, I understand what you're saying, because, and the thing is, a lot of these dives that we have done on characters like Laurie Strode, like some of these other Final Girls, where we talk about you know, oh, well, this is what this character means to me and this is what this character is saying and representing and this is how they're feeling and this is how I relate to it. These are all things that we as viewers have had to do the work on. Yes. It was not in the script. Like, we did that work. And that's what I think makes, you know, films like The Final Girls different because we don't have to do the work. The characters are doing the work for us and we're just responding to it. Yes, unlike something like, you know, Nancy in... A Nightmare on Elm Street. 
you can go as deep into her character as you want, or you can just appreciate her as, like, she's a cool chick, and she does cool things. Mm-hmm. Like, this one, you can't have that surface-level interest in these characters, because the plot is built around being deeper than that. Yes. Nope, I'm right, I'm right there with you. And I think that's why, like, so many guys who, you know, tying it back to Casper, which I didn't quite finish this point earlier, is that guys don't want to talk about their feelings. <laughs> Guys don't want to talk about therapy. They just want to like, oh, hey, Dr. Harvey, you're upset. Let's go get drunk and avoid all of our problems and not actually address your grieving. Like, it's kind of like that. No, I, I, you're not saying anything that I don't agree with. I, I think that you're, you're absolutely correct. And I'm only gonna, gonna clarify this for a final time because there, there was this meme that I saw the other day that really kind of hit home with me where it was like, well, you said this, but you didn't say this, which means you actually mean this thing you didn't say, which is so fucking annoying. It was, well, wasn't there another one that I saw that was something like, you mean that you didn't express every nuanced thing in 240 <laughs> characters on Twitter? That must mean you're a bastard. Right, it was like just that kind of bullshit. So again, when we are talking... In terms of this podcast, we try to have as much of a nuanced conversation as possible. But when we say things like, there are these dudes, or there are these guys, or da 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 That's not all dudes. We're not, not all saying men. all of you. We're saying those that it is applicable to that have these sort of attitudes. So yes. if it is not applicable to you, we're not fucking talking about you. You're doing good work. Keep it up. You're doing amazing, sweetie. We're, we're using broad brush strokes. We are not painting miniatures. Correct. I mean, we do paint miniatures, like, metaphorically speaking, because we get very specific with the things. But when I say generalizations like that, you know what I mean. Yes. But unfortunately, we live in a world where if we don't draw that out and say it, then someone is going to be like, uh, I don't know if you know this, but this isn't a po- uh, problem podcast. Uh, they actually hate all men and think they should not be allowed of opinions. And that's not what we're saying, friends. We're not saying that. I actually like it when men have opinions, if they're good opinions and not something like, <laughs> No, Jennifer's body's dumb. It's just dumb. Well, okay, wh- okay, well, why is it dumb? It, no, it's just it a is. bad movie. No, cool, good contribution, bro. Yep, did a great job. Tell that story at parties. It's Th- a wonderful one. Thank, thank you for bringing this to the table for us to discuss today. <laughs> like, that's the people that yes. I'm just trying to roast here for the last ten minutes. <laughs> yeah, so if you're not that guy, then congratulations on not being that guy. Yeah. And you can come hang out at our sleepover anytime you want. All right, so we've we've done a lot of we've done a lot of big brushstrokes. We've done a lot of uh, painting of miniatures with the final girls. But Harmony, the most important question of the day is: the final girls is asking you to prom. Is it a yes, a no, a maybe? And are you writing something on the note back? I'm gonna definitely say yes. Like this movie is so good, and I appreciate it so much. It is. As I said, my favorite movie we're talking about this month, and one of my favorite ones that's on the, that we've done so far, like pretty comfortably. And as for a note, I really just want to like slow dance with you to Betty Davis eyes as we maybe get stabbed to death. And I give a, a nice raspy rendition because I'm having those seasonal fall allergies just wreak havoc on my voice. I mean, if I had my choice in how I want to die, it would definitely be slow dancing with you to Betty Davis eyes and then being stabbed. Betty Davis eyes! Not so much that. The moment has been destroyed and <laughs> I am suddenly no longer in love. I guess we're doing divorce. Okay, bye. Okay, bye. <laughs> well, goodbye then. <laughs> and on that note. <laughs>
You can find the show on Twitter and Instagram at this ends at prom. You can find me at BJ Colangelo on Twitter and Instagram. Harmony, where can people find you? I am on Twitter and Instagram at Velocitraptor. Make sure you throw the underscores in there to truly emphasize my pun. <laughs> and as always, thank you, thank you, thank you to the Sonderbombs for allowing us the use of their song title for our theme song. And the Sonderbombs have a new single out. Came out a couple weeks ago. It fucks. We will see you next time for our final week of spooky season. So keep an eye out for that. Keep those eyes out. All right, we love you. Bye. This episode was brought to you by Pod People Productions. To find more episodes of this show and others, please visit podpeople.me.